Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Savvy Cell Podcast on the Ambiguous Network. And right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful end to the week. It's Friday, so a few things to talk about in the world of Hollywood. I'm going to be talking about Wonder Woman 84 getting a PG-13, a look back at Avengers Endgame a year after its world premiere, and a little bit more. But the first thing I do want to talk about is breaking news that just happened from coming out of Paramount Pictures, and that is a reshuffling of their lineup coming out in the next few years. So kind of like how we started off the week with Warner Brothers pushing back a few of their films with Batman moving from June to October and a few of their other movies. We're ending it with Paramount shuffling around their lineup in the next few years relating to COVID-19. And again, like how with Warner Brothers' announcement on Monday, it had to do with a lot of their films that weren't done and weren't getting were in post-production. It was a lot of the films that were held up due to production shutting down a lot of the movies. And that's the same thing that's happening here. And the big news that's going to be coming out of this reshuffling is the Mission Impossible films, both Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8, moving to the month of November. To be more specific, Mission Impossible 7 will be moving to November 19th of 2021, and Mission Impossible 8 will be moving to November 4th of 2022. And Along with the two Mission Impossible films, The Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt is moving to July 23rd of 2021. Paw Patrol is moving to August 20th of 2021. And Unset is going to be set for August 28th of 2020. And the final one is Dungeons & Dragons moving to May 27th of 2022. So again, a lot of movies that had future dates for the next few years that were affected by the production element of films and television shows and really the industry of Hollywood shutting down as with the MI7 film and MI8, which are shooting back-to-back after the success of Mission Impossible Fallout in 2018. Those two movies were set to shoot in Italy, but they were one of the first productions to shut down due to the coronavirus because before it really hit home and hit hard in the United States, they were set to shoot in Italy, and Italy was the one of the first after Wuhan and China were hit after it originated there it was Italy that was going to be that was becoming the biggest hotspot before the United States and so they decided to shut production down and wait and see what was going to happen and then the United States shut down and in terms of the entertainment industry theater shut down Hollywood productions from TV to film they all shut down and there was an article that came out about the future of what productions are going to be how are they going to grant safety to the sets and to the crews between social distancing and taking temperatures. And in the article, it's referenced that Tom Cruise is looking to hopefully get back to production by June at the earliest if everything falls into place that they can get back up and running. There has been no indication that that is a set date, but in terms of talking about how productions are going to look at, they referenced Mission Impossible as one of the films that is looking to get back to production soon, but regardless of that, they they are going to need a lengthy production date because of the way that Christopher McQuarrie, who's shooting and writing this film, these two films, once again, after doing Rogue Nation and Fallout, the fifth and sixth MI films, that he's going to need some time to work on both of these films. That has Tom Cruise coming back, that has Rebecca Ferguson coming back, Simon Pegg is coming back. They have newcomers such as Haley Atwell that is joining the franchise as well. So there's newcomers and oldcomers to this franchise, and there's going to be a lot of moving pieces 
that come around with it. And I'll talk about this a little bit more on Monday, but because this is huge news and it kind of brings around the end of the week from where I started talking about the reshuffling of a lot of these films to to what Paramount is doing now, I thought it kind of be a nice bookend to the week. And just to talk about it real quick, and I'll go more into detail in on Monday, Fantastic Beasts 3 is set to open the week before on November 12th of 2021. And along with Mission Impossible 8, that is set to go up against Shazam 2 on that exact same date of November 4th of 2022. So a lot of our shuffling is going to be happening between a lot of these other films as these two, these blockbusters are not going to want to go against one another. So there's going to be more reshuffling and the chess game that is happening with moving a lot of these big blockbusters that are coming out. So I'll have more information and more details and more discussion on Monday, but I just wanted to get the news out there and my initial reaction of, again, no surprise that this happened. This was going to happen because of the shutdown delay of productions happening in both film and television, that this was an inevitability and that Mission Impossible, both 7 and 8, the biggest films and biggest names from this reshuffling for Paramount Pictures will be moving to November of 2021 and 2022. What are your guys' initial reactions about this? If you can see this, see the comment section down below. Let me know your thoughts down below. Moving on now to some news that came out yesterday right after I uploaded my podcast, and that was the LEGO franchise has found a brand new home after being at Warner Brothers for the last few years, and their new home comes in the form of Universal Pictures. It is a five-year deal exclusive for the studio, and this is a not a surprising move as there were reports coming out that Universal was the frontrunner to receive the Lego franchise in December of 2019. So this has been something that's been in the works for a while. And it makes sense that a studio would want to go after the Lego franchise after the success the franchise has had over the last few years since 2014 with the first film. It's made It made Warner Brothers $1.1 billion globally. So it's, it is a hot franchise that people at first, before the first film came out, that nobody thought it had any chance of being a success whatsoever. But Phil Lord and Chris Miller were the directors of the first film, and they brought some heart and comedy for both kids and adults and brought just a, a great sense of, of wonderment in, in, a, in a world full of Legos that worked really well and it had a few twists and turns along the way that really satisfied the story of that first one. And then the Lego Batman movie came out, and that was a different take on a Batman character that was intriguing and interesting that really hadn't been developed yet that it made some really good money when it came out in 2017 in February. And then the Lego Ninjago movie came out that same exact year in September. That didn't do as well as I think Warner Brothers really wanted it to, considering the success of Batman in the first Lego movie. And then I think the one that really kind of closed the deal with Warner Brothers was the Lego movie 2, the second part, came out. And after the huge success of the first one, while it did well critically, it did not do well financially as well as the first one did. And so that was really the, the the nail in the coffin, if you would say, for Warner Brothers with the Lego franchise as it was running out. And they didn't decide to renew the contract or pursue it. And the Lego movie ends up with Universal. And this is a statement from Donna Langley, the chairman of Universal Filmed Entertainment Group. She says in a statement, 
The LEGO system in play gives people the ability to build worlds and create stories that they carry throughout every phase of their lives. To partner with such an iconic brand that remains relevant and is consistently evolving allows for creatively creativity and storytelling. We're thrilled to start building the next chapter of the Lego movies together with Jill and the Lego team as they continue to inspire curiosity and innovation. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the Lego movie was all the, the specifically the first one and what they did with the Batman movie as well as all the Easter eggs that they put in there that fans of those franchises that Warner Brothers had, they were able to put in there as little nods for people that I think were really, really cool. And for the Lego Batman movie, I thought what I thought was really cool was in the beginning of that movie, you have all these villains that you you might not know anything about unless you're a diehard Batman fan. And I knew some of them from watching the 60s Batman television series with Adam West and Burt Ward. That was really cool. And so I think what Warner Brothers did exceedingly well was tap into all these different franchises and pull out these Easter eggs from all various within Warner Brothers media property that they're able to pluck out and put in and make Lego Legos out of and give them a childlike quality to them. That was really, really cool. And, and one of the things that I think is great about it going to Universal is that it has those exact same properties, those famous properties, those popular properties that can really draw people in. For example, you have the biggest one of them all that you can make out of Legos is Jurassic Park. You've seen video games and you've seen Legos actually made of the world of Jurassic Park. Fast and Furious is one that people have been clamoring about. Having Dom Toretto come in on a on a in a Ford or or in a Mustang and just kind of drive in in this Lego car will be pretty cool. The, the Despicable Me franchise with the Minions, Secret Life of Pets. There's so many possibilities with the Lego franchise that you can utilize with Universal property that it makes sense that. Universal to want to go for this and that they could have the same success if not better success with the Lego franchise than maybe Warner Brothers did but the thing about what Warner Brothers had and Universal now doesn't is Warner Brothers has those four movies that Universal cannot have so they can't use the Emmets and the Lucy's and any of the the Will Arnett Batman they can't use that anymore because that is a part of Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers most likely unless they come to an agreement with them of licensing those characters to Universal, they're going to have to create a whole new world, a whole new story with these properties that they can infuse with like Warner Brothers did. So I think it's going to be interesting. It's no doubt that the Lego franchise can build with Universal and there is popularity to it and that people might want to clamor to go see these movies. So it'll be interesting at the kind of story that they make with Lego because I think what made the Lego movie such a big success was that story because it wasn't about the – you can market Legos and you can build off of that. You can bring kids in, but it was the, the, the surprise of the story, the heart, the emotion, again, the twists and the turns that came along with it that weren't in the trailers that you didn't expect because with the trailers, people were wondering, is this all it's going to be? And when people saw the movie, they were surprised by how great of a story was actually told so I think if Universal goes about this the right way like Warner Brothers did they'll have the same exact success or even more success than Warner Brothers had with the Lego franchise what do you guys think about the Lego franchise moving over to Universal from Warner Brothers are you happy about this are you excited that these properties are going to be utilized what other properties that Universal has would you want to be seen made into Lego figurines for the movie let me know what you think down below in the comment section about this and leave your thoughts on what you think will happen with the Lego franchise going to Universal moving forward 
Now moving on to another story regarding a sequel that is now in development, and that is for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It is officially being greenlit by Paramount Pictures that will be working again with Entertainment One, aka E1, for a sequel to the surprisingly successful first film that came out last year in mid to late August, where you always have those little films that you don't expect to do well, that with not a lot of major franchises coming out in August, that you can find those little diamonds in the rough that do surprisingly well. Hitman's Bodyguard was one of them that came out a few years ago that's going to get a sequel that's coming out later in the years that is starring Samuel L. Jackson and Ryan Reynolds once again that did eh, critically but box office-wise people went to go see Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. And even though Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark doesn't have that same power, it still was an effective horror thriller that came to the screen. It was one that wasn't rated R. It was PG-13, and it did a very effective job of delivering the chills and the thrills. And everybody that was a part of that first project is coming back for another go-around. You have the director, Andre Overdahl, that will be returning. You have Guillermo del Toro, who wasn't a director but was a producer and helped craft the story in the world of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the movie that's based off a bunch of, uh, of books about this universe. He'll be penning the story once again. And then it will be Dan and Kevin Hagum coming back as the writers of the story that will be adapting with the story that Guillermo del Toro creates. They'll be returning to write the script. And this is a movie that made over $100 million, $105 million to be exact, worldwide at the box office for a film that had a very low budget for even with some of the effects and the monsters looked incredibly terrifying. They were all prosthetically made, it seemed like. So I think for this Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, it, it is a very interesting film. I think it was one that definitely scared me, and I'm someone that scares very easily. But I think the the genius thing that was made about this film was you didn't need to go R-rated to, to, to deliver those exact same thrills. And I think PG-13 films can be a lot scarier than R-rated. And that's not to say that R-rated films aren't scary, especially horror films aren't scary. They certainly are, but I think you you don't have to worry about the gory aspect or the violent aspect you can go with what makes a horror movie horrifying and that is really those suspenseful moments those moments that make you squirm in the theater that you're, you're trying to get out anywhere but you don't want to move at all because you want it you're glued to the screen and so i think that's what made scary stories telling the dark so effective it had a, a, a nice human story really interesting characters that i wonder if they'll follow those characters in in the next movie and it, it delivered on being a an interesting escapable horror film for the for the month of august now there's no specific story details there's no release date for the second film in the franchise but it is in the works to deliver a sequel to scary stories to tell in the dark and it's one that i'm interested in seeing after watching the first movie moving on now to some a topic that i've wanted to talk about i didn't get to yesterday and i wanted to leave it to the end of the week, and it's an article that I was reading from IndieWire talking about the future of the Academy Awards with everything that's going on with the coronavirus and its effect. Again, I, I've said it repeatedly on, on here, and I'll keep on saying it until this all ends, is the impact it's had on the world and not just entertainment, but on in everybody's lives and, and all the doctors, the nurses, the medical workers that are putting their lives on the line and onto the economy and to states and to people that are self-quarantining. It's had an effect on, on everybody. And 
it, the the entertainment is one small little thing to worry about in all this but again it's something that to me that I've always followed with entertainment and to see the effect that it's having on entertainment I want to keep people apprised about it and one of the things that has been in, in, been affected are film festivals we talked about South by Southwest teaming up with Amazon to deliver some kind of digital festival even though it might not be up to its fullest strength as it would if, if everyone was actually in Austin Texas then, of course, you have the two big ones that people are questioning right now, which is the Cannes Film Festival and the Venice Film Festival right now, which are the next big two to come this way, along with the Tribeca Film Festival. That is going online, but you have, when it comes to the Oscars, Cannes, you have Venice, and then, of course, there's talks about Toronto moving online and Telluride potentially moving online as well, that you wonder what's going to happen with the Oscars, because those three film festivals in the beginning of September and late August are the ones that that get the Oscar buzz rolling for that specific season. And so you have to wonder what's going to happen moving forward for this year's Oscars. What, how, is the telecast going to be affected? Is the season going to be cut off? Is the season going to be shortened? And a lot of the answers will be coming in the next week when the Board of Governors meet on Tuesday, April 28th. They will be meeting to talk about this year's Academy Awards and what they're going to do. Are they going to keep things the way they are? Is the Oscar eligibility going to be li- not limited, but is it going to be lenient towards other specific movies that might not get Academy Award consideration, the streaming. What's going to happen with, with with the streaming of Academy Awards, specifically when it comes to Netflix? We know how Netflix and, and when it comes to streaming with the Academy, the rules they set in place where you have to at least play in a theater or two in Los Angeles and New York. And with theater shut down right now, Netflix doesn't have the the opportunity, doesn't have the space to actually do that right now. So are you lenient towards streaming services, specifically Netflix, which has some heavy hitter movies coming out, with, such as you have Man coming out, you have The Blood Five with Spike Lee coming out. Those are some potential Oscar material films, baiting films, that are coming to Netflix that we don't know what's going to specifically happen with those movies. Might they have a better chance this year because they're only some of the only films that might come out that have the warrant to be in an Oscar-nominated movie. So I think these are questions that are going to be had that are going to be answered soon and I think have to worry some people of, of what kind of Oscar season are we going to, are we going to get because we're not going to get the same old, same old Oscar season. These things are going to be affected and things are going to play differently this year and it could even be very well next year that some of this stuff happens with social distancing and film festivals not happening right away. We might not get a Sundance next year if this goes if the social distancing and these restrictions still go in place in 2021. And then of course you talk about the movies. I talked about Netflix and the streaming services that that can qualify for the Oscars with with Mank and Hillbilly Elegy with which is directed by Ron Howard with Amy Adams and Glenn Close. Then you have other films that are coming out that maybe they might have an easier year of getting Oscar nominations and winning Oscars, like The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is being directed and written by Aaron Sorkin, West Side Story with Steven Spielberg. That was always looked at as being a heavy contender for the Oscars, but does it have a chance of winning some Oscars this year now? Dune, and dare I say, a film that came out early in the year that before all this COVID stuff was happening, COVID-19, 
that was a fantastic movie, and people were saying maybe it could qualify for the Oscars, but because it came out in February, it probably will be lost in the shuffle, but with everything happening right now, it could still remain intact, and that's The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is a timely movie that that is that came out that deals with important issues such as domestic violence, especially in the Me Too era, and taking one's life and, and, and terrorizing somebody. And Elizabeth Moss delivered a career performance. She delivered a phenomenal acting performance in that movie. And you have the visual effects that could get some love, production design potentially. There are some things that Invisible Man could go for that, dare I say, could get nominated for some Academy Awards. So those are those are some aspects that you could look out for when it comes to the impact that the coronavirus could have on the Oscars this year. So it's things to look at and things that I'll probably be reporting on next week when it comes to the talk that the Board of Governors have on Tuesday of what they're going to possibly be doing for the rest of the year. Will they be lenient on other movies like the streamers and what is going to happen with qualifying can you like the golden globes are doing are you going to be able to send a digital copy to the academy and that's what they accept to be an oscar eligible film this year there's going to have to be some leeway with the studios but also with the academy the academy is going to have to to bend the rules a little bit to if they want to have an oscars this year and I think they need to have an Oscars. Like the Indie Wire article also says that even in a time like this, there should be an Oscars. And again, we're ways away from there even be discussions of whether there's an Oscar ceremony or not. But I think it would be nice to have one. And I think we should have an award season to still take our mind off of things right now. And right now, it seems like people are, are gunning for the end of 2020, that theaters are at some kind of strength and capacity that you have a cram November and December happening right now that there definitely are going to be some qualified Academy films that you can put out that during that time frame that you could have seven to eight nominated films for best picture and best directing slot and actors and actresses that could genuinely work at that given moment in time right now that I think definitely could be something to check out, to look at and be interested in. So I think it's one it, it's it's questions that again are going to be had that are being had right now that are is something that is going to be interesting and I think it's one that people are going to be looking at people that are going to be reporting on in the next few weeks what do you guys think about this news let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts about this down below now moving on to the last one of the last bits of news that I do want to talk about and that is just news that is coming from the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and it talks about Olivia Wilde's next project that she's working on after the huge success of Booksmart, and it is Don't Worry Darling. It was a very high-in-demand bid that came from New Line, and they were able to, to scrape up this film, and now it seems like they have at least their starring cast, and what a cast that is this is that they announced, and they announced three actors will be coming on board for this project. It'll be Chris Pine, Shia LaBeouf, and Florence Pugh will be coming on board for Olivia Wilde's next film. And details right now are very scarce about the plot of the movie, but there are some details, and 
According to The Hollywood Reporter, the setting takes place in an isolated utopian community in 1950s California desert, and it centers on a housewife who uncovers a disturbing truth about her seemingly perfect life. And Olivia Wilde will be starring in this movie as well in a supporting role, and Florence Pugh will be the leading member of this ensemble playing the housewife. And reading the description of this, this seems exactly like like the kind of role she did with Midsommar with Ari Aster last year with... I think really put her on the map. Even the Little Women got her that Academy Award nomination. I think Midsommar really solidified Florence Pugh as somebody to watch out for. And like I, I said when she's doing Black Widow now, which is going to put her even more on the map and make her a star, Florence Pugh, I think, had the best single year you can have for an up-and-coming actor or actress in the industry. Starting out with a really good film with Fighting With My Family, and then you come out guns blazing in Midsommar, and then you top it all off with an Academy Award-nominated performance in Little Women in which she really was the, the scene-stealer in that movie. And she delivered an incredible performance, three phenomenal films in 2019. And she's going to continue that with Black Widow. And to do another film like this like exactly sounds like exactly the kind of paranoid character that she played in Midsummer that I'm really excited to see what she does. And you have Shia LaBeouf, who, who also had a really, really good 2019 with his written film that he starred in with Honey Boy and The Peanut Butter Falcon. So three actors, and Chris Pine, who's in Wonder Woman 84 this year, when it comes out hopefully in August, that you really have a really good cast in front of you right now, and they'll probably fill out the rest of it soon. You have Olivia Wilde to really show that she can direct with Book Smart, and it was one of my films that I had in my honorable mentions of last year. So this is definitely one to look out for. I'm excited about it. What do you guys think about this news? Florence Pugh, Shia LaBeouf, and Chris Pine and Olivia Wilde's brand new film. Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. The last bit of movie news that I do want to talk about today comes, speaking of, from Wonder Woman 1984, and it has been unveiled that even though it has been delayed until August 14th right now, there has been a rating put in place for Wonder Woman 84. And surprise, surprise, it will be rated PG-13. For what you might ask, well, shockingly, it is for sequences of action and violence, which makes total sense in the world. There's going to be a ton of action, a ton of badass moves that Gal Gadot does as Wonder Woman with Chris Pine's Steve Trevor. So I'm really excited for this film, and it makes all the sense in the world, and there's nothing else. There's no language. There's no innuendo, sexual content. There's nothing. It's just action and violence. So we know the kind of roller coaster we're going to get with this movie, and it gets me more excited to see this as the days tick on that hopefully, hopefully, this movie does release on August 14th, and we don't get it delayed any further, but if we do, so be it. But the fact that we get at least a PG-13 rating, which it's close to May, the film was gonna set to come out from a little over a month from now, which makes sense that they would put a rating for it right now. So they probably had this rating in store already, and no surprise whatsoever that Wonder Woman 1984 gets a PG-13 rating. What do you guys think about this rating? Are you surprised by the details in that PG-13 rating that it's just sequences of action and violence, or are you not shocked by it at all? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. And the last two things that I want to bring up today are kind of commemorating anniversaries that are happening for one is a film and the other is a character that has 
been an icon in so many films. And the first one to talk about is a film that changed the landscape for theater going, for event films, and that is the MCU finale, Avengers Endgame, had its world premiere a year ago, and it'll be a year ago on Sunday that it it, it premiered around the world for everyone to see on April 26th, and I can remember exactly April 26th. It was the last day of my internship, actually, at ABC, and while I was so I was sad to leave there, I had a great time there. I was me being and again the movie buff that I am, the insider that I am, being that this is what I want to do when I grow up, loving the MCU that I was so focused on wanting to get through that day to watch Avengers Endgame, not being spoiled by anything whatsoever, and just going in with having no knowing that things were going to happen in the movie. I, I've seen that I saw the trailers. I know who's going to be in it, but making sure that I only saw the basic trailers and that was it, nothing else whatsoever. So I made sure not to watch any TV that day unless it, unless I was on ESPN and I had to watch something. I was in a sports department. So I had to watch some television and, and transcribe a bunch of things and, and I did what I had to do. But every time a spot would come on, I would turn away and cover my ears and make sure I wouldn't listen to it if it did come on. But every other time I would just focus on the work that I needed to do and – when I went into the theater that day, there were other theaters that were playing the film, and I made sure to cover my ears. I made sure to cover my eyes that I was nobody was going to disturb me that day. And it was going to that theater. I felt like a kid on Christmas or on Hanukkah if you're Jewish like I am or Christmas. I just felt like a kid that was waiting to unwrap a present, whether it's on a birthday, a holiday. It was like I was ready to unveil something to me that I was waiting a long time time to get and from the year of infinity war to endgame felt like forever and watching that film with my friends and just with everybody in that theater there was hooting and hollering and crying and laughter and excitement and amazement and it was truly one of the greatest not just it's the greatest cinematic experience i've ever had in my life but it truly is one of the greatest experiences ever that i'll ever have whether it's it's something personal in my life or anything it will always be something that i cherish forever and i don't think we'll ever experience something like what we experienced with avengers endgame again and and it, it revolutionized again the way that event films are that there's a pent-up energy for this movie that everybody had to go see when when tickets went on sale in april it crashed sites and i remember when the force awakens crash sites i remember when infinity war and the last jedi were crashing sites there, it wasn't. It was nothing compared to what Avengers Endgame was doing. It literally, from the moment tickets were on sale, nobody could get on for an entire day, and people were buying tickets in in groups for not just one day, but for two to three days in that opening weekend for multiple time periods. The theaters were crowded up to a boiling point. It was insanity, and. It was the greatest cinematic experience, like I said, I've ever had in my life. The only experience that comes close to it was Infinity War was one hell of a time, and I had some great moments in that too. But it comes close to the first midnight premiere I ever did, which was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's the only time that I could feel the excitement, the pent-up energy that I had for that. Infinity War makes some marks a close second, and I had that same... 
if I had to rank my top five, my top four experiences, it goes Endgame, Deathly Hallows Part 2, Infinity War, and then The Force Awakens. But throughout Avengers Endgame, I had no idea what to expect. And in that final hour, that final 50 to 40 minutes, I've always envisioned what this cinematic experience, this cinematic universe that Kevin Feige was creating was building up to. And it is exactly what I envisioned it would be with some surprises along the way. And it just shows the investment that I've had with the with the MCU to that point when Tony dies and, and when Cap goes and the stories that were brought to conclusions. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It was something that was just an event unlike anything else. And especially in a time where we're living in self-isolation and quarantine and movie theaters are shut down and people are talking about the movie experience being in jeopardy, especially with the coronavirus being in, in effect there was a few weeks ago when it was talked about how there was audio that was placed of the crowd reaction to that portal scene of Endgame or that, that the scene when Cap grabs Mjolnir for the first time, tying in the events of what happened in Age of Ultron together were teasing that Cap could lift, lift Thor's hammer. That, that crowd experience was trending on Twitter, and there's nothing else quite like that. And you talk about Scorsese talking about cinema and the MCU being being a theme park and roller coaster rides it is it is a theme park it is a roller coaster ride and i think that is a genre of cinema that has become so popular now is that experience of of clapping and and jumping up and down and hooting and hollering that's the kind of stuff where so many people are divided amongst each other nowadays within film within fandom within politics and so many different things that something like an Infinity War, a Force Awakens, an Endgame can bring a theater of two to three hundred people together is unheard of in, in, in days like today. And I don't think we'll ever get another experience like we got with Avengers Endgame for a long, long time. Even in Marvel Studios' standards, it's going to be a while because we we saw the Avengers come together. We never saw anything like that. We saw Infinity War where we never never thought we'd get anything like that. And then Endgame came and topped both of those films off where they delivered fanfare moments, concluded storylines that we have known. If you've been with the MCU as long as people like I have for years and years and years since the first Iron Man movie where storylines were closed since they've been in development for 10 plus years, it was worth it all. And it gets... it it. It brings sentimental value, but at the same time, it gives you excited for the future, knowing that there are films out there that can still get you excited and revved up and, and, and excited for what the future of cinema has in store, and that you can't get a, an experience like Endgame watching it at your home, on your TV. It's it's not the same. You have to experience it with surround sound on the big screen with a community, and I think that's what movie going has become. It's become a communal experience that rivals a sporting event, really, a live concert event. That's what the theatrical experience has really evolved into, and it's something that I enjoy, and I know people enjoyed, and we witnessed history on that level, but we also witnessed history on this film becoming the highest-grossing film of all time. It broke opening weekend records, the first film to hit a billion dollars opening weekend, grossing $357 million in the domestic box office, $100 million to the next film, which 
broke the record the year previous with Avengers Infinity War. So this film just did things that were unheard of. And we always touted The Force Awakens, Infinity War to be the kinds of movies that maybe could break Avatar's record, James Cameron's record for being the king of the box office for almost 20 plus years between Avatar and then what he was able to do with Titanic in 1997 as well with Avatar and Titanic in consecutive in consecutive timelines really that this film was able to eclipse that by a the, the hair of its teeth is astounding and I think it's something that will be taught when we talk about cinematic history when we talk about entertainment and how to market films and what a, a theater going experience is like this film will be talked about in circles for many many years to come on so many different levels that looking back at on it at a year from from today it's incredible to see the times that we live in now the times that have changed and what it brings back that we're hoping to get again once this whole pandemic is over with and we're able to go back to the theaters and, and experience things like excuse me like that once again so Avengers Endgame a year thinking about it a year later is I still get goosebumps and emotions just thinking about being in that theater surrounded by my friends and peers watching that film for the very first time is something I'll never be able to replicate again or or it'll be something that I'll never I'll carry with me for the rest of my life and I can talk about for years and years to come so that's up that's to Kevin Feige that's to the Russo brothers that's to Marcus and McFeely who delivered an, an incredible script and to me it's to me it's my favorite MCU movie to date Captain America the Winter Soldier always had that but I've always just had this great sentimental feel for Endgame I think it just delivers on the the values of the heroes and what it means to be a hero and getting back up from a huge defeat and 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 taking back what you believe in and, and bringing back what you love no matter what whatever it takes and really showing these characters, these heroes, in in as humans, really, that they have emotions, that that they're affected by this, and that they're not just that it's not every time that you know you can just pump your fist up or pump puff your chest out and everything is going to be okay. They can lose as well, but it's about what you do after you lose, and they don't just sit down and take it. They get back up, even if it's years and years later. They do whatever it takes to win in the end and get back what they love so i love the messages that this film brings i love the the comedy that it that it brings as well as hitting on some very hitting moments thanos is as dangerous as he's ever been in this film tying these every single storyline back in some way shape or form bringing back characters that we thought were dead in in different ways that were exciting the way they brought back Gamora, i was not going to be happy if they brought back brought back some people that permanently died before the snap in Infinity War and the way that they can continue Loki's storyline is is a very genius way. Gamora's storyline is a very genius way of doing it. They didn't bring back everybody that died. Like they didn't bring back Vision in Endgame. He permanently was deceased in that movie. And so I think that portal scene is one to never forget. There's so many great moments in Endgame that you can just carry with you for the rest of time that I can talk about it forever, but I'm going to stop right now. And just leave it at Endgame a year later is still something that people will have goosebumps about and will remember, especially in times like this, that we do need cinema experiences and that theaters can are still alive and no other place can replicate what you experience with an Infinity War of Force Awakens and more importantly, an Avengers Endgame. So 
that's where I'll leave it at that. What are, what are your memories about Avengers Endgame, guys? What do you think about the film a year later? Have you seen it? Have you not seen it? Are you interested in the MC or are you not? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section. And the last thing I do want to talk about is another impactful pop culture icon, and it's a character this time, and that is the clown prince of crime himself, the Joker. And the Joker started out in the comic books. He's been in, in animated shows, but... He's always evolved in, in not even cinema, but in live action form. He started out with Cesar Romero, who played him so well in the Batman television show in the 60s with Adam West and Burt Ward. And he played him like you would play him really in, in the comic books. He played him cheesy. It, it, was, it, was, it was a good role that I enjoyed, that lighthearted kind of Joker. Then, of course, you get that same kind of exact thing, but in a darker world, but... In, in a darker Joker, but still have that kind of comic bookish feel to it with Jack Nicholson, who brings a lightheartedness in a in a in a clownish way to the Joker that you see from the comic books. But then you talk about Heath Ledger's Joker and what he brought to that role, and in in a world that was more gritty and down to real and darker, like Burton's Batman, but more realistic, and somebody that was just insane somebody that kind of embodies the craziness of the joker that even though he's somebody that's over the top and and no pun intended clownish but he's somebody that really has mental issues and somebody that is just psychotic in every way shape or form and you don't know what he's going to do and Heath Ledger played that to a T beautifully and it's recognized as a great one of the great performances I think of all time and one of the great the greatest villain performance of all time and his best performance of all time. It won him the Oscar posthumously, tra tragically, but it's a role that he'll be remembered for. And even if he didn't pass away, Heath Ledger, I think he would always be remembered for this role forever because of what he brought to the table. You don't see Heath Ledger. You can see Jack Nicholson in the in, Bat in Burton's Batman, and you can see it, we'll talk about it in a minute, with Jared Leto's. You can see it in Leto's Joker. You can see Jared Leto, but... With Heath Ledger's Joker, you don't see Heath Ledger. You just see the crown, the, excuse me, the clown prince of crime himself. And so he just embodied and, and just shred away any identity of Heath Ledger in that role. And Jared Leto brought a different, he brought a more mob Joker to it, where he, he dressed differently and he acted differently. And I can't really make a judgment call on that Joker because I don't, I don't think we'll ever see him again. But what the little bit we got in Suicide Squad, it was good. I wanted to see more of it. And so I, I think Leto doesn't get the credit he deserves. And I know he did horrible things on the set that Heath, even Heath Ledger, somebody who was a method actor and, and was trying to get into, the, into the, the psyche of the Joker, he would never do the things he did on the Suicide Squad, such as, such as leave dead rats at some of his cast members' trailers. Like, you don't do that kind of stuff. And even to immensely get ready for a role, it's going over the top a little bit. But his Joker was over the top, but it was over the top that I enjoyed and I wanted to see more of. And again, even though he did some not nice things during the set, during the making of that movie, I definitely think he he deserves the benefit of the doubt in terms of the, the kind of Joker he was looking to create, even though he didn't get a chance to really do that. And then, of course, we get to the current one, which is probably up there with Heath Ledger's Joker, but in an entirely different way. And that's Joaquin Phoenix, who won the Oscar for Best Actor this past February, really, for the for playing Arthur Fleck's Joker. And 
it's 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 as grounded and real as Heath Ledger's Joker, but deals in being more of a realistic sense of what we would could see the Joker being in times like these and and the the criticism for this movie was a little blown out of proportion. I know the for the violence and mental disease you want to tell that, but that's not really what this really was about. It was really a society that is in two different sides that beat this person down and down to the point that they created a monster. And this isn't somebody that has the high IQ of the Joker or who doesn't really who doesn't really become this huge mobster or anything like that, but he develops a crowd because of the symbol he represents, which is anarchy and chaos. And that's exactly the kind of thing that lines up with Heath Ledger's Joker that I think makes Joaquin such an interesting portrait. And he is somebody that shreds all sense of Joaquin Phoenix. And even though you see Joaquin Phoenix for a majority of the film, once he turn, puts that makeup on, you see the Joker. You don't see Joaquin Phoenix. So I think he does a masterful job as well as portraying somebody who is down but at the same time turns violent and eradicate and it's just a fascinating performance that he does so incredibly well and it's a great film it was my third favorite film of last year and it has a lot to do with his performance really and how he carries that film really from the beginning to the end and it's it's between Ledger and, and Joaquin and I don't want to choose between the two who, who the greatest they're both the best jokers of all time and and all these jokers are incredible and I think it also speaks to the pop culture of the Joker, the fact that we got a solo film for a Joker film and it made a billion dollars speaks to something about this character. It attracts people to watch him for some reason. I can't explain it, but people want to watch this character, whether he's the villain or the or the main character in a movie, people are just engrossed in him. And, and he is a fascinating character that is a unique villain that never has multiple backstories that even though the Joker that Todd Phillips makes is his version of the Joker, and the thing with Heath Ledger's Joker that makes him great is the fact that he he always lies about where he comes from, that every time he does the, you want to know how he got these scars, it's a different story of how he got the scars every single time. And they, the traditional sense is that even though you don't know who he is, the Joker's always was created from an acid bath, and it seems like the Suicide Squad and Burton's Batman follow that more to a T, but... The Joker is so hidden in secrecy that you can create different origin stories for who he is. So the Joker on his 80th birthday is somebody that is just is just attracted to so many people. And he, like Batman, is a symbol. But as Batman is a symbol for hope and unity, the Joker is the symbol for anarchy. And I think that is what makes the Joker so attractive is the sense that he is the exact... Kind of like how Superman has Bizarro and Spider-Man has Venom. Batman is that to, or Joker is that to Batman. He is the exact opposite of what Batman represents. And I think seeing that as being an equal but a complete opposite is what probably attracts people to the Joker. So I think I find that interesting. And I think for 80 more years, for however long Joker goes for, that is what people will be experiencing with this character for years to come. Whether we get a sequel for Phoenix's Joker or something else in, in Matt Reeves' Joker, or even if Matt Reeves decides to, to develop a Joker in his trilogy, we'll just have to wait and see, but I'm sure going forward we'll have more Jokers to talk about to add to this incredible collection of actors that portrayed the clown Prince of Crime. 
And guys, on that note, that is going to be it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Network for other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out the brand new show that is on the Ambiguous Network, The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. You can check them out on the website ambiguousproduction.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And after you're done checking them out, go to Canopy Treehouse and use the coupon code Ambiguous. And after you're done checking them out on social media, make sure to follow me on social media right after that. You can follow me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Thank you guys again so much. And until next time, keep on screening.